Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, the high school and college years are an extended roller coaster of ups and downs as our kids try to figure out academics and friends, first loves, first breakups, driver's ed jobs, and leaving the comforts and predictability of home. As children move through their teen years, they are constantly changing their brains, their bodies, their interests. So how we parent them also must change. But how do we stay close as a family and support our kids in their new adventures while still leaving room for them to discover who they are on their own? For this discussion, I will be talking to Lisa Heffernan. Lisa Heffernan is the co-founder of Grown and Flown, the number one site and community for parents and teens and college students, reaching millions of readers every month. With more than 700 writers, they publish original content on a daily basis and cover topics such as college admissions, mental health, and parenting. You can join Grown and Flown on Facebook, sign up for their newsletter, and read their book, Grown and Flown. How to support your teens, stay close as a family, and raise independent adults. So welcome, Lisa, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Before we leap into the material, for those people who haven't had the opportunity to meet you and read your book or visit your website, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what set you on a path to talking about raising independent kids through their teen years and into young adulthood? Sure, I'd love to. Um, As my kids were actually, as so many stories start with our own families, as Mm -hmm. my kids were in high school and I was looking around more and more for parenting resources as I hit some of those difficult moments where I didn't know how much to parent or how much to back off. Those that sort of in-between stage that you enter when your kids are in middle school, leaving middle school, particularly that first year or two of high school. Um, I found very few resources on the internet. The internet is full of wonderful, rich, Um, useful tools in raising children from the moment they're born um, through those very early um, elementary school years. But there really was very little about the teenage years. Um, I had three teenage boys that comes with its own set of issues. Um, And uh, with a partner, Mary Dale Harrington and I, we thought, you know what, let's throw something up there. Let's try and become a place where community, where experts, where writers come to share their knowledge and information about the particular challenges of raising kids through the middle school, high school, and college years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a great source and there is so much information up there. Now, talking about the teen years in relation to preparing our kids to leave our homes and go to college or take on a job or go abroad or 
go on some kind of adventure without us, it gives us a unique lens to take pause and kind of ask ourselves some informative questions. So I'd like to do that now since we're in this stage, stage of preparing ourselves, we're listening to this podcast, we're having this conversation. What would you say are the biggest topics of conversation that you think we should absolutely have with our teens over those middle and high school years to help prepare them so that they are able to successfully leave for college, leave for a job or leave for a longer term adventure without us? Um, that's a great question. So I think the, the underlying principle is, and I, I tried to use this with my kids, you don't need to teach your children the things that they can learn on YouTube. Mm. So I think that that works as a, as, a, as, a, as a principle you should hold in your mind. Sure, you can teach them to do laundry. There's no reason not to teach them to do laundry. There's no reason not to teach them to cook. But the truth of the matter is when they leave your home, if they haven't done one of those tools, they will A, look on YouTube, and they will B, call you. And, you know, you can explain freshman, my middle son, freshman year called me up and said, mom, there's purple on everything I own. Um, Should I have taken that purple pen out of my pocket? (laughs) Now, what do I do? You know, and you can have that conversation. Then the conversations that are harder to have before they go are the much more meaningful ones, the ones you can't find on YouTube. So those are around self-care. Those are around what works best for them sleeping, how they eat well, how they learn, the kinds of things what we need to probe ourselves and learn about ourselves and then try and practice those things. That's harder to do once they've gone. So it's really good to have those conversations about how are you going to take care of your body and your mind when I, who's your mother, who have been here, you know, maybe hands off a little bit, but, but you're still in our home. So what I found, for example, is that one of my kids when he no longer had the structure of our family, the lights turning out in our houses around 1030 and everybody going to bed and us all getting ready for the workday, had trouble getting himself to go to bed. Mm. There was nothing to stop him from staying up till three or four in the morning. Absolutely. And I think so, that's a fear of a lot of people too. Exactly. So some of those things, but how are you going to take care of yourself when the structure of our family is no longer here? When the balanced meals and the good food isn't in the refrigerator and the oh, sleep yeah. patterns and those sorts of things. So that's an important conversation to have. Again, not YouTubeable. It's something you have, you know, over the course of years, actually. It's actually interesting because just literally over the weekend, my daughter had a sleepover. She realized when she was there that she was eating so many foods she would never have eaten here at home. She's got like a sensitive stomach. She's like not somebody who can just eat all that stuff and be fine. So she was really paying for it this morning. She felt really not well with her stomach. And she said to me, it it really has to do with the foods that I was eating. I, I really need to make sure I don't do that again. It's like those kinds of learning opportunities that they get. I mean, she is in middle school right now and she does have more freedom. And I have told her, you know, when you're by yourself, you, you now need to be the one who makes those choices for yourself since I'm not going to be there and ask yourself, is this the right move for me? I mean, that really is kind of what makes sense right there, right? Exactly. And because she's still in your home through the middle school years and through the high school years, that can be an ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't feel well when you don't exercise. I have a kid who's super creative. And when he didn't do anything creative, when his life just became absorbed with academics, he was a less happy person. 
I'm not sure that he understood that. It was easier for me to see as the parent looking on. Mm -hmm. So that's a conversation we could have so that when he was in the college years, he could kind of reflect. I know my mom and I talked about this. This is when I don't feel good when I don't have this as part of my life. Your daughter now knows that about herself. And it'll come up again and again. And when she leaves for college, she will know that about herself in a really important way, as opposed to learning it the hard way sometimes. Which it was the hard way this time, but at least she was here and I was handing her some medication, my heating pad. <laughs> you know, you start to say, well, here are some things that you can do in order to help yourself feel better when she's by herself at college or wherever she ends up, then she's got to come up with that on her own. But if she's had some practice, now she has those tools to fall back on. And I'm wondering, though, when you were talking about your son in that case, how did you bring something up like his creativity and his creativity outlet without feeling like you were lecturing or without him making it out to be a lecture that you were giving him? Yeah, you know, the, the tiptoeing starts really early. Yes, <laughs> starts I'm feeling school. it right now. This is like totally <laughs> self-serving, that question. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, the best way is, I think, with questions to stop lecturing and start asking. So mm -hmm. one thing I could say is, look, I've noticed when you don't do anything creative in your life, you're really unhappy. You're not, you know, you're not satisfied in a world that is simply academic. You need to do this. And I probably would have gotten a pretty nasty response from that sort of approach. Yes, right. A better approach often is I'm looking at you and you don't, to me, you don't seem as happy as you are. What's different in your life now? So mm. kind of sort of almost Socratic, I don't mean to sound like a teacher or a lecturer, but almost asking the questions that might lead them there. First of all, the information is much more meaningful for them if they discover it themselves. Mm. So your daughter came to you and said, I don't feel good. Yes. She posed the question, something's happened. Let's talk about what happened. Right. Um, if you had just jumped in and said, see, I've told you, we've talked yes. about this. What are you doing? Right. Not very effective. So always starting with the line of questioning. I think right. they don't, you don't want them to be defensive. You no. want them to be the ones who are kind of coming up with some of the ideas. And she was the one who actually said it to me in the car on the way to school this morning. I think it was what I ate this weekend. Yeah, it's two things. It's, it's yes, it's to keep them from being defensive. And when they're not defensive, then they're listening. When they are defensive, as we know, when we're defensive, you, you can no longer hear what the person is saying oh, because right. you know, you've, you've thrown up your guard. But second of all, it's also teaching them thinking patterns. Mm. What we're trying to do is to give them the tools that they can use when they're on their own. One of those tools is to start a line of questioning. I don't feel good in my life right now. What could it be? You know, mm. so we, we're kind of teaching them a lot of what we're doing is just modeling our own thinking and our own questioning. Um, I find, you know, when our kids were tiny, you would talk out loud. You'd oh yes. The grocery store. You'd have them in the in the in the grocery in the trolley at the grocery store, and you'd say something like, "Mommy's buying grapes," mm -hmm. and you know, "Mommy's buying pasta," and we're going to make pasta. Remember, you love pasta, and this is pasta. So you kind of, in some ways, that doesn't stop. Mm. Instead, it shifts to, um, "This is how I think about this. This yes. is when I'm feeling like this. I ask this." We the same sort of modeling how you think with a toddler, right. you model how you think with a teenager. Yes. Yes. I call that parenting out loud. Yes, exactly. It, it just makes me feel like, you know, you're not lecturing, but you're, you're helping them to hear what's going on in your mind while you're dealing with a problem, mopping up the spill, the mistake, whatever it might be, so that they see, oh, this is 
something everybody has to deal with. And here is a way that this person is dealing with it or an admission of an emotion or, or whatever it might be. And when you can parent out loud, then your child can absorb it. And that voice often becomes their voice when you're not there. Exactly. And that's exactly what you want. You, you want them to be able to take that with you. You know, sometimes it's modeling your thinking. Um, sometimes it's modeling your doing. One of the big problems that kids have in the transition from high school to college um, is organization. Yes. So they get accepted to a college and they are perfectly capable of doing the work in that college. Admissions officers know, you know, what they're looking for. They, they accept kids who are by and large capable of doing the level of work. Organizing that work is an entirely different skill set. So one of the things we really helpful things we can do through the middle school years and really through the high school years is help them with their organizational structure. This is not doing things for them. This is not over-involving yourself, um, but this is helping them because a lot of the structure of high school obviously disappears in college, that sort of daily class and things mm -hmm. due the next day and constant mm -hmm. quizzes. And many kids stumble at that point. Well, one of the way to do that, going back to your point about um, parenting out loud, is to show them how you organize your own time. So mm. instead of standing there, which was my temptation and lecturing at my child, <laughs> this is what you must do. Again, my temptation yes. is to say, I have so much on this week and the only way I'm gonna get through it, let me just sit down here for a sec. Let me look at my, look at my calendar with me. This is the way I do it. This is the way I block out time. I need to exercise. This is how I do it. So just showing them how we do the sorts of skills that we're trying to teach them. That's another one of those skills. You asked me what it's super important to do before yes. they leave. Yes. That time management skill is a huge piece for a lot of kids. I, I agree with you. And I feel like it's an area that I would like to be doing more of with my children. Uh, my kids definitely could use some help in that area. I like your idea of showing them your schedule and admitting that you have a lot of things to do, and this does take some pre-planning. Um, what I often find, you know, as my child has just entered her middle school, you know, for the first time, and, it, you know, she does have more on her plate, and she is expected to do more on her own, but doesn't really have the organizational skills, nor has she really been taught them you know, they need some help learning those organizational skills. So if we don't teach them, they may not ever really be exposed to them. Is that correct? Exactly. They're not really taught that often in school. Right. In high school, um, the organization that's imposed from high school, in other words, you know, our families all wake up a certain time and everyone's out the door for work and for school. And there's, a, there's the, you know, a day of classes and then there may be activities or sports and it's almost kind of done for them. And when that disappears, mm -hmm. that scaffolding, right. a lot of kids um, fall apart and right. really, really struggle. So it's, it's a super important skill we can teach them. But again, super important to listen to them. So for some kids, the best thing to do is, you know, a, a calendar or a planner or something they can have in their hand and they can write things down and they have that tactile thing. For a lot of kids, their minds go to their phones and if they yes. can organize their time in their phone, super, super important. Mm -hmm. So working with them and saying, how, what tools would work back best for you? There are so many tools available. There are so many ways to do it. And one other thing, um, back to your point, which I love about parenting out loud, showing them when we've messed up. So mm -hmm. when we double book, when we don't leave enough time for something, mm -hmm. you know, when you're rushed and you're in the car and you know, you're not going to make it, it's a little bit of a teaching moment to say, you know what? 
I did not plan this well. Mm-hmm. I didn't take account of the fact that that could last longer than it was mm-hmm. going to last. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in trouble with time. So it's not bad to show them that even good planning or deliberate planning still makes mistakes so that they can think to themselves, hmm, you have to sometimes put a buffer in when you mm-hmm. do something. Mm-hmm. These are all teaching moments. Our, our own oh, mess ups are that. great teaching moments. I love that idea of teaching the buffer. That is so ingenious and it is helpful when we let them in and see our mistakes and also hear some ideas of how we might be able to correct it uh, for another time. I'm actually, it's almost like you saw what happened this morning when we were rushing out the door. (laughs) Oh gosh, did not leave enough time. And I, I was like, oh, what are we going to be able to do to, you know, tonight to help you and, and, and be able to get out of the door sooner that we're, we're going to have to figure that out. I'm going to, I'm going to ask her for some ideas, uh, given that, you know, she was doing some things last minute and I'm hoping that she gets the idea that she's going to need to pack her bag at night <laughs> and check if she has everything, check if she's done all her homework in advance. So we've got some, we've got some chatting to do that I will start with questions um, so that I'm not lecturing. <laughs> yeah, the, the temptation is to blame the traffic, like, or when yes. you're in the car, say, oh my God, this traffic, this is making right. us late. But the answer really is to say, you know what? I didn't take the traffic into account. Yes. This is me. This responsibility. And, it's yes. accountability. Yes. And to let them hear that. And oh, like it, that. when you when we're pointing the finger at them, it's hard to hear. But when we're pointing the finger at ourselves, yes, it's easier for them. To so hear. important. I, I'm, I'm really thankful for that little tidbit of information. I think that's a real good one that everybody could use. And yes, of course, traffic always becomes the scapegoat and everything feels like an emergency. You feel like you're in this huge rush and nobody wants to start their day off that way. So uh, that is really good skill. Now in your book, you talk about technology and like one of the things that kind of struck me, I was looking at it, like the latest technology is often used to track your child, um, you know, through their phone, through an app to see where they are when they leave your homes. This is something I hear about all the time uh, that that the, the child is here, the child is there. I know exactly where this child is at all times. On the one hand, you talk about in your book, there are these safety arguments. You know, they go someplace they're not supposed to go or they have hard car trouble or they lose track of time. There's this map app that's gonna help pinpoint their location and remedy the situation. Now on the other side, there's this argument about privacy and trust and doubts as to whether we can actually keep them safe and the acknowledgement that this can be a slippery slope where we really need to draw a line between um, where our tracking begins and ends. Do we track their whereabouts all the time? Are we reading their texts and emails and social media? Are we checking up on their friends, their love interests? What do you advise and what practice can those listening go through to determine where their tracking, if any, begins and ends. It is one of the most controversial things. Um, yes. This one, this one, and the um, the portal where we can go online and check yes. their grades. Yes. And they're actually they're actually sort of um, two sides of the same coin because mm-hmm. they're both about you know monitoring our children electronically mm-hmm. in a way that obviously we were not monitors children. Right. Um, so a really really wise man who was the, uh, the principal at one of my son's schools said to us once, and I've I've held this in my mind with lots of different questions like this. 
figure out where you want to be in 12th grade, figure out where you want to be when your kids are going to leave home. And he was talking about curfews actually, but it works for this as well. And then work backwards. So if you want your child's curfew to be midnight when they're 18 years old and they're in 12th grade, do not start with their curfew at 1130 when they're in ninth grade, because you mm. have no room. You have, you've left yourself no headroom. Right. So if the goal is to stop tracking our kids, let's say when they're 17 or 18, after you're comfortable with their driving, figure out a plan of how you're going to get there, figure out why you're tracking them and how you're going to get there. Our goal always has to be independence. And many families are comfortable tracking each other into college. I will tell you that. And many kids, as it turns out, you know, 17 year olds, 18 year olds, 19 year olds, 20 year olds track their parents. So I will also tell you that it's, that it's reciprocal, which is something I had not anticipated. Mm -hmm. um, but figure out where you want to be. And if where you want to be is my kid goes to college and I no longer track them, or my kid starts 12th grade and I no longer track them, then figure out the steps you're going to do to get there. Mm -hmm. There is some value in tracking them when they're learning to drive. Mm -hmm. They get lost, they get flustered. Um, some of the tracking apps, I will tell you, um, have speed checks on them. Mm -hmm. And there is some value in knowing when a very young and inexperienced driver is speeding mm -hmm. and maybe taking back their privileges or talking mm -hmm. to them about that sort of things. Because the, the very, very harsh reality is they are the worst drivers on the road mm -hmm. and they are dangerous to themselves and mm -hmm. perhaps to others. And, and that we want to take account for. So I'm going to take the driving piece out because that's an actually really important thing. The place we want to get to is where our kids think to themselves that we are not saving them and we are not watching them and they are responsible for themselves. They need to be in that place before they go to college. So we may track, say that we track them only on the evenings when they go to a party late at night, when they're mm -hmm. 17 years old. So mm -hmm. I know you're going someplace, you'll be at a party, you're coming home at 12. I'm just going to track you for those hours. We mm -hmm. work on a process that works for your family where you can stop tracking them. The goal is to stop tracking them and try and figure out your glide path to getting there. And, and mm -hmm. for every family, it's going to be different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I keep leaving room for that, understanding that different things work for different people. They I do. often get questions about that parenting portal as well. And I went into the middle school years saying, I'm not going to check it yep. because I'm, I also interviewed Jess Leahy and uh, for the gift of failure. Yep. I also talked to her straight out and she told me her opinion on parenting portals and how, you know, if you haven't listened to that one yet, like that's a great podcast talking about allowing the kids to really take ownership of their grades and not checking in on them and just allowing them to be not putting so much pressure on the grade and really understanding that they need to take responsibility for themselves. So I went into middle school that way. And got the rude awakening a month and a half in when I found out through the teachers commenting to me and, you know, getting in touch with me saying that my daughter hadn't done, you know, all this work uh, for, you know, an extended period of time. Now, this was something that happened with not just my daughter, but many of her friends. They just weren't used to it. It was not, you know, it just wasn't in flow yet. And they didn't understand exactly what to do or how to do it or how to submit. I had no idea. I had yeah. absolutely no idea that this was happening. So that caused a couple of weeks of needing to catch up. And so I had to actually amend my thinking. You know, my, my children have ADHD. So that gives an added you know, an added piece there and do need some help with organization. So I needed to say, all right, well, in our situation, 
I need to periodically check to make sure that the work is done. It wasn't a grade thing. It was a, are they doing the work and handing it in thing? Um, and I don't want to check every day. I just, and I would let my daughter know, I'm going to go on and check to make sure that everything is done so that she was in full alignment with me and there was no like sneaking around. So I really had some more, I would say just understanding of what parents were thinking um, who were checking their parenting portals because every child is not the same and every situation isn't the same. Perhaps your child does get lost a lot or maybe your child winds up um, feeling pressured to go places that they don't typically want to go and need some parenting to you know, help them go to the right places and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. We can't speak for every parent, but I think it's, a, it's, it's something to consider all sides of the argument before you make your choice. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think also it's it's a glide path. We're looking at a trajectory. So you may start out the conversation with your teenager and say something like, let's talk about you know what kind of grades or, or how you think you're going to do in school this year. What are your goals? And right. when your student says, you know, mom, I'm usually a B plus student and that's, you know what, and you say, that's great. So one of the scenarios could be, we're going to start the year and I'm going to check your grades once a week to make sure, as you say, that the work is completed and that, and when I find over three weeks or four weeks, you're doing exactly, we're going to switch it to checking every other week. And Love then I'm only going to check yes. once a month. Yes. And it's yes. on you to do what you told me you can do. So I'm yes. not saying you're an A plus student. You're telling me this is my goals for the year. And this is what I'm going to try and do. And then you get to a point where you're not checking at all. Yes unless they're now if they don't keep their their side of the bargain if right. work isn't getting turned in if grades are you know c minuses instead of b's mm -hmm. then you're checking more often so you you they control how much they're being observed yes by like fulfilling that. the goals that they have set out for themselves right yes so yes that, 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 in my mind, encourages their independence. So if they say, mom, I'm going to get B pluses and I'm going to turn everything in on time this year. And that's what happens. By the end of the year, I won't be checking that portal at all. Because I would love that. You will I mean, be doing really what you, we agreed to do. You as a child and me as the adult agreed. Yes, I would love that. I, I, and I told, I told my kids, I had no intention of checking. But now that I'm being brought in because the teachers needed me to be a partner in this, I, I I, that's why I want to be straight out and allow them to, you know, please just check. I'll sometimes remind them, please just check to make sure all your work has been completed. Exactly. And, and so that that's me trying to let go of, of needing to check. I still check every couple of weeks uh, to make sure. And sometimes something hasn't been handed in. And I will say to my daughter, Oh, you know, you, you have a zero in this. Um, what's going on with that? Oh, I did it, but I forgot to hand it in. So she's still learning. Yep. She's still growing, but we're never, we're not, we're not where we were when, you know, she had so many zeros across the board. As I mentioned, there were several of her friends that were in the same boat and the parents also didn't realize. So I think, especially when the kids are in the beginning of something, like you were saying, the beginning of driving, the beginning of middle school, you know, the beginning of high school. Sometimes with those new, new responsibilities, we need to give them some extra support until it's, 
it feels good and right for our kid. Yeah, you might see yourself checking once a month with a ninth grader and not ever checking with an 11th or 12th grader. Yes. Because right. your ninth grader is just finding their feet, uh, you know, about all the different expectations in high school and your 11th grader really needs to know what to do. So exactly. it, it, it completely depends on the kid and the age they're at and the stage they're at. And, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of just Leahy and I yes, very much understand yes. the gift of failure, but there's also a gift in just stumbling and actually not failing. Yes. So when we just, when we don't actually let them face plant and actually you know, fail on something, but we let them stumble, have some yes. repercussions. Oh yeah. They de and, she definitely stumbled. <laughs> exactly. And, and maybe there's Perfect. some repercussions, maybe there's yes. some detention or there's the grade has been marked down because it, it was, was late or absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. So the, we don't necessarily need full blown failure. Somehow con sometimes consequences are enough. I think that's a great idea. And, you know, it would have been pretty negative if we had gone through the entire semester or two semesters with that situation, because yes. had it been like that, she would have made it into a habit, right? It would have just been the way it was. I don't hand things in or I don't do my work. Nobody's really checking. Nobody, you know, is really wondering where it is. So I'm doing fine. I'm getting through the grade. Uh, but as it turns out, you know, we know that failing to that degree, when you have just zeros across the board, would make it so eventually she would have had to either repeat the grade or go to summer school. So, you know, that would have been a really harsh punishment for something that I feel wasn't really an intended cost. It was something that she just didn't really understand yet. So that's part and, of parenting. You know, exactly. And it also, each of these things gives us this remarkable teaching moment. So you probably read in the book, um, I had to have one of my kids put a whiteboard on the wall Oh yeah. in front of his computer Yes, because the, he wasn't opening the planners. He wasn't yes. going Same to the thing. apps. He wasn't yes. going to the apps on his phone. Yes. So the fact that he wasn't turning things in, it was actually, actually the same situation you're describing. So he wasn't turning things in, uh, in a science class. And so we struck a deal where he would write his assignments on the whiteboard and yeah. then he would erase them and they were sitting on the wall of his bedroom. Love it. And, you know, so his failing to do that allowed me to help him find a tool for himself yes. that did work. So if good. I, if I had just let it go for the year, as you say, he just would have had a bad grade at the end of the year, yes. but this instead helped us develop a system for him. I love that. The system is so important and that's something lifelong. So perfect. Yeah. Now, one of the things most parents would say they want for their developing teens and young adults, I would imagine, is that they want them to feel capable and responsible and self-reliant in, in many areas that apply to them, whether it's academics or athletics, after school clubs, activities, friendships, relationships. And we don't want to be people who are over parenting, like basically what we were just discussing that, you know, if we're just doing everything for our child without peeling things back or without being cognizant of, are we taking over? We really want to be supportive at the same time. So what would you say are some places uh, other than what we just discussed that we can address that so that our kids do feel more capable more responsible, more self-reliant without feeling deserted before they're ready? You know, I think one of the things that is difficult for us as parents, particularly at this moment in time, is that their childhoods are actually so remarkably different than our childhoods. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's the electronic tether that we have to them. 
Um, there's the fact that we are, and there's, there's a lot of research that bears this out, we are much closer to our teenage and particularly young adult children than we were to our own parents. Mm-hmm. Um, they talked to us more, it may be the electronics, though the trend was starting even before the electronics. So I think part of it is to reflect on the fact that we can't give them independence in the same way we had in independence and we have to look for the ways that they can have it. Mm. Um, you know, we might've had independence by walking out the door and you know, walking to a friend's house that was a mile and a half away when we were 12 years old. Mm-hmm people are less comfortable with things like that. So we need to find ways that they can have independence. Um, unfortunately, some of them are more structured, but we, um, you know, we, need to, we need to, at every step, look for that opportunity. Um, it may be letting them run a few errands for us. It may be whatever, whatever structures we feel work. And this is where, this is where the, three, the Life360 and the tracking apps you and I were talking about a moment ago, this is where they're actually a benefit and not a harm. Mm. because they allow us in some ways to give our kids more freedom. Mm. You, you're more comfortable letting your kid distance themselves from you in a shopping situation mm-hmm. or in a um, sporting situation when you know where they are than when you don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives us a little bit more, a little bit more structure there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the places where we have to start is letting go of what our ideas of independence were Okay. in the 90s or whenever those things happened and and looking more closely at what are the experiences our kids are having and having having and where we can give them to them now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes I think you're that, that's right straight on right there that we need to be able to do it in in small ways and you know you bring up like at a shopping center where you know my parents they just drop us off at the mall exactly remember that I, <laughs> yeah, mean, I do there we went. Um, and there were, we had the mall across the street from our school. So I would just stay late and I would walk across extremely busy street with a friend of mine and just go across the street to the mall and then take the late bus home. I mean, I definitely felt like I had a lot of independence when I was that age. And I also think about, I mean, we, you know, we haven't really talked about college, but I went abroad. I didn't have a cell phone you know, yeah. and I was abroad for a year and traveled all throughout Europe just with a group email that I could every once in a blue moon get on when I was at college and postcards, literally yeah. postcards that I would send to my parents. And now I think about that. I think every, I mean, every student who goes abroad, they're like extremely fortunate and they gain so much that I have to think to myself, wow, that would be really hard as a parent to let your child just go. And it's amazing the freedom we had when, when we were younger. But, but it is an important thing to remember that. So when you, when you are talking about that, I mean, think, first of all, think about how that enhanced our lives. Think oh, about so how much. that prepared us for adulthood and how our kids can do these things even in a safer way than we could. So yes. yeah, we, we, I, I lived close enough to a mall as a, as a teenager to, to ride my bike to them. Also, mm-hmm. you know, once you drove around the corner from your house in your little neighborhood, your parents had no idea where you were. No. So mm-hmm. we can give our kids safely some of these um, opportunities because we both have access to texting them, calling them and tracking them. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to remember what we got out of those experiences and figure out any way we can give our kids as close an experience as we can. Agreed. I like it. And actually, you know, they would have a cell phone, I guess, at that point going abroad. Yeah. So what a different yes. experience that would be. And you just have to remind yourself not to, not to keep so much, you know, t- 
keep in touch with them so very much because that's a, it's a mistake on its own. You know, the constant checking in on your child, the constant, where are you now? What are you doing? Why are you there? I think that that can backfire so dramatically because you then they don't want to share with you. Then they aren't feeling trusted by you. So that piece can go overboard very quickly. Yeah. Um, I mean, a very good notion. When they first go to college, it's not a bad idea to keep in touch and Mm-hmm. Just make sure they know that you're there because it can be a, it can be a rough period. About sixty percent of college kids have some significant amount of homesickness, so it's mm-hmm. it's important to make sure in those beginning weeks that they're there. Mm-hmm. But after that, um, once you've seen that they've settled in and they you know they found a few friends and they you know they have they have a they have an emotional life raft in in knowing some people and having some ties to their college, um, it's it's important to let them sort of set the pace of things. Yes. Um, the beauty of the technology we have now is they can send you a picture of something they're seeing, or they can send you a two line text without yes. a big phone call. Right. You know, we, we had to have these phone calls with our parents. Yes, we did. Week, and it was, you know, this is, this can be a much more casual, much more, you know, they send you a funny little thing they saw. Right. We find that we keep in touch with our children more often, but sometimes in a less um, significant way, meaning mm-hmm. they, we don't have that half hour long phone call. Mm-hmm but we have a, a much more um, relaxed kind of banter that goes on. You know, they mm. send you a sentence, you send them a sentence six hours right. later, two days later, they respond to it. So there's sort of an ongoing conversation that, that, that goes on that keeps mm-hmm. us in touch with each other's lives without them feeling like anyone's monitoring them. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And you, you bring up something that that feeling of, of stress that, that kids sometimes feel, I mean, in the beginning of things, but, but, it's something that I think we talk about a lot now. Anxiety and stress are areas that seem to be everywhere we talk about them. And in your book, one of the tips that's talked about is thinking of a happy place or a happy memory to change your mindset before doing something difficult, like taking a test or needing to perform in a certain way, or you know, when you're moving away to college, whatever it might be, like the thing that's stressing you out. And, and this actually works according to the studies. So what are some good ways to help us help our teens and teach our young adults to deal with mounting stressors in life? And what are some things that we should avoid doing so that we don't pile on more stress? So it, it, it was really interesting that, you know, circling back to what you and I talked about um, earlier, of the things that we need to teach our kids, one of the most important things we can teach our kids is ways that they manage their own stress. Mm. It's very difficult to teach a frantic 18 year old who's 500 miles away Mm. how to climb down from their stressful situation. Mm. It is much easier to teach a mildly anxious 13 year old who's in your home what works best for them. So the, the, the first precept I would say is figure helping them figure out what works best for their stress. The, the temptation is to um, do what works best for us. Mm-hmm. And everybody's really different. And what I'm, some people are, find that stress melts away for them when um, they exercise. Yeah, right. For other people, that doesn't work at all. Um, so it's super important to help them discover what works best for them and that what's their happy place. So it may be getting together with a friend for a coffee. Uh, it may be working out. It may be listening to music. I will tell you for one of my kids, the biggest de-stressor for him was video games. And I had it exactly wrong. I would say to him, what are you doing? Get off those mm-hmm. games. You could, mm-hmm. you could just hear the nagging, right? Mm-hmm. 
I didn't really look long and hard that for him, that was a way of distressing. For him, that was a way of washing away a day of school that had been difficult and, and trying. Mm. And I needed to look at what worked for him, not what worked for me. Mm-hmm. So that's one super, super important thing. Mm-hmm. Help them figure out what works for them. And so they have that in their pocket when they go away to college. Mm-hmm. They know mm-hmm. that if I pick up my guitar for a half hour, I'm going to feel better. Right. That kid, I know that about myself. I learned that when I was 14 years old and I was in ninth grade. And now I'm 19 years old and I'm a sophomore in college. And I know this about myself. My mom mm. and I helped, you know, so that's super, super important. Um, Lisa Demore, have you had Lisa on? Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. Lisa will talk, will talk about obviously how it's super important to remember that stress and anxiety aren't necessarily bad things. That mm-hmm. They motivate us. They warn us. Um, so don't just look at them as evils that we have to immediately shed. Again, mm-hmm. thinking that we could teach our kids when they're in our home. So you could see your kids feeling stressful, stressed. You could talk with them. Why are you feeling stressed? I'm feeling stressed because I have all this work. Well, mm-hmm. let's talk about how you're going to plan that work. Let's talk how you're going to work through it. Let's talk how you're going to schedule your time. Again, back mm-hmm. to our organizational thing. Mm-hmm. So super important to talk to them not that stress is a bad thing, but the stress is an indicator mm. things that meaning it's a warning sign. It's a red flag that's, you know, red light that's um, flashing saying you need to do something about that. There is an issue here. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. And I think that's a really helpful um, so that we can help our kids really look at it as just a, a little sign that means maybe we need to take a moment to step back and use one of our tools, whether that tool is to help diminish the stress level or it's to help organize something outside so that they feel calmer inside. Is that correct? Exactly. But, but use it as a warning sign, not as, you know, when you, when you get sick, you need to get rid of this, the illness. Mm. When you get anxious or you get stressed, you need to find what is wrong and what you can do to get rid of the root cause. Okay, there you go. Many times when we get ill, we just treat the symptoms. So if you have a headache, you don't go for an MRI on your head every time you have a headache, you take an aspirin. We treat the symptoms. We don't necessarily, unless it's a huge problem, we don't necessarily always have to find the root cause of things. We know how to make them go away. Mm -hmm. With stress and anxiety, we want to do both things. We want to figure out what is causing this and, and use it as a warning sign and then how can we best treat it? So it's, it's both, we need to do both things and mm-hmm. just doing one without the other. Um, we do them a, a real service when we teach them how to use, how to do both things when they're feeling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another mistake I think we make around stress and anxiety is our, with the best will in the world, we will say to our kids or they will hear us say, oh, they shouldn't have to do all this work. They shouldn't be under all this stress. Mm-hmm. School wasn't this hard in the nineties. They shouldn't have to work like this. Mm-hmm. It's not helpful. In fact, it's the opposite of being helpful. Our kids don't live in the 90s or, they, or, the, or the 2000s. They can't go back to the world that we lived in. They can't go back to a world where social media doesn't exist and there isn't that pressure. That world is gone. So when we say things like, oh, I feel terrible that social media is such a stress in your life. You know, we didn't have that. I feel so bad that you have it. Well, we have it. So the idea isn't to go back to a world that no longer exists or to hearken back to it. That's not helping our kids. What's helping them is, is how they deal with the world that they're in. And I, I hear parents saying this a lot. It's kind of a temptation to say, oh my God, it wasn't like this when I was a teenager. Not so helpful mm-hmm. because they can't live in our teenage years. They have to live in their own. Okay. Yes, exactly. Good point there. Another one of those areas that 
really the kids need to know about before they leave for college and really before they're in high school is about drugs and alcohol. And we know that our teens and their developing brains in combination with illicit drugs and excessive alcohol are not a good match. Since our listeners are getting your bird's eye view on what they should be talking about with their teens before they leave for college, what are the conversations that we should be having right now about drugs and alcohol without sounding like an after-school special from the 1980s? So uh, this is a really easy one for me because I did everything wrong. So um, <laughs> I feel really good about talking about this one. So I, I, I did give an after-school special from the, I gave it just say no kind of. Um, yes, you were Nancy you know, Reagan, just exactly. say no. And I'm yeah. going to monitor your behavior and make sure that you don't do it. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to act like a, you know, a spy um, to make sure that you stay away from these things while you're in high school. Um, all bad. So the best way to start is to give our kids the credit, which is due them, which is you are a smart person and you're going to understand it when I explain to you some of what we now know about these things. Mm. I'm not going to give you a medical paper because you're 14, so you probably don't want to read it. But I'm going to give you some articles that are written that explain what we know about the science of teenagers using drugs and alcohol. And Jess has, as you know, Jess probably just has a book out about this. Jess Lane yes. has a book about, yeah, she's coming on about this to next talk month. About this exact good. thing. Yes. Good, good, good. It's a great book. I've read it. Yeah. Um, it's in my, it's on my shelf right now. The fantastic. daily copy. Yes. Well, your listeners are going to be very lucky because Jess is amazing on the she's subject. Amazing. But some of the things that we know now that we might not have known when we were teenagers are how much um, more drugs and alcohol affect the teenage brain. Um, how much their impact is greater, how kids feel the effects of drug and alcohol greater than, than adults feel the drugs and alcohol, even for the same weight. Um, how the long-term effects can be greater of using drugs and alcohol in a teenage brain than an adult brain. Mm -hmm. And how the risks of addiction, and again, this is Jess's book, how the risks of addiction are greater for a kid who starts drinking at 14 mm -hmm. than a young adult who starts drinking at 19 or 20 mm -hmm. in college, because that's obviously a very common time where kids start experimenting with alcohol. Our kids are smart enough to understand this. We owe them to explain to them what we now know definitively through science, rather than just lecturing them, don't do it because I said so. Mm -hmm. So both talking through with them about the effects, the, the effects you and I were just talking about, about how the impact is greater, how the addiction risk is greater, all those sorts of things, giving them things to read that, so it's not just, this isn't all coming from you, giving them things to read, which, which address those topics, because there's mm -hmm. a wealth, now that we have the internet, there's a wealth of information. And so treating them like, we want them to act like a young adult around drugs and alcohol. We mm -hmm. want them to use the judgment of an adult. We need to treat them that way when we approach the subject. Mm -hmm. So yes, we will forbid it. And yes, we will punish it. Punish it. If, if, you know, if you come in at 15 years old and you've been drinking, there will be consequences for mm -hmm. your behavior. Mm -hmm. And yes, you should call me and that night, you know, I will make it right and I will get you home and I will get you into bed and, we'll, you know, we'll keep everybody safe and away from automobiles. But also I'm going to treat you like the way I hope you will act. I'm going to give you the information to use your judgment so that it's not just me forbidding it. Me just forbidding it is, we have a long history which will show us that that doesn't work. Right. We have a long history that shows forbidding our children from doing things isn't the most effective way. So bring them into the science, bring them in to mm -hmm. what we know about these things. I always find that treating them like the people we want them to become is the best way to make them become those people. Mm, 
Well, that's a great statement. I think we need to put that on a meme right there. <laughs> that's that's so real quotable. What you're saying really strikes me because when we're giving information to our teens and allowing them to deduce what is right and wrong for them, we're giving them information that shows them definitively not based on parents, not based on my opinion, just the science that this is what happens to your brain. This is what happens to your body. This is what happens to your emotions. This is what happens to your addiction level that they're able to also come to a conclusion that's right for them, not based on your opinion, but based on their opinion. And that is much more powerful than what you're saying. It's coming from their own heads. How can they argue with their own selves? Exactly. And they're going to need these tools. So mm-hmm. the, the reason to teach them these tools is both because we want them to use these tools when they're in the high school years and they're exposed to both drugs and alcohol, which most kids are in those years mm-hmm. is, is, you know, at some point they have some exposure to these things. But we also want to have them to have those tools in their back pocket when they're 18 and 19 years old and they're in college and we're not there. Yes. Yes. Um, as with, so as with that's why we have to things. develop those tools in them when they're 13 and 14. Yes. Yes. And another area that I feel like we really need to do that in is the area of, of romantic relationships when we're talking about sex and, and making sure that they have the information that they need before they actually need it. And I know that that's one of those topics that people really squirm about and uh, you know, they, 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 tend to feel like it's either taboo to talk about or they extremely uncomfortable, which is normal to feel uncomfortable talking about it because really we didn't really get too many of those conversations when we were younger. So because the teenage years are oftentimes when, when kids have their first crushes, their first romantic loves, their first breakups, some of them are then experiencing with different sexual acts, you know, different types of touching, what is it that you feel is really important to talk about with our kids related to romantic relationships, first loves, first crushes, and ultimately what they should know about really hopefully committed relationships later on? Um, so one of the reasons why I think these things are difficult to talk about, and this is actually true of both the alcohol and drug talk we were just mentioning and um, talking to them about their sexuality, is um, when you're sitting there with a 12 or 13 year old and you know that this conversation needs to be going on, it probably should have even started earlier. Mm -hmm. It's scary to think about um, having sort of a full blown conversation about sex with, uh, with a kid. The thing to remind ourselves is this is a long conversation that is going to happen over many years. Mm -hmm. And that, that those first conversations or even those first five conversations will gently get you both into the, into the, habit and the comfort level of talking about sex. Mm-hmm. So if I thought I had to sit down with a nine-year-old and explain to them everything about sex, that could be a little intimidating. It's um, daunting. It's daunting. Right. Of course, but we if don't I have know to do it all at once. That I'm going to talk about a nine-year-old with nine-year-old appropriate things. I'm going to talk about a 12-year-old with a 12-year-old appropriate things. Mm-hmm. And that a 17-year-old, I'm going to feel much more comfortable having a very, very in-depth conversation about sexuality with a 17-year-old it, it makes the whole process less daunting. So just mm-hmm. remember, we're got, this is a conversation that's going to span years and it's going to be age appropriate at every stage. Mm-hmm. So that's it. The most important thing is to talk about their own agency. I think, you know, um, we are all terrified that our child will be in a situation in which they're uncomfortable or they are pressured to do something 
or that perhaps even they pressure someone else to do it. Mm -hmm. So there is no message that's more important that is that nobody should ever do anything that isn't 100% within their comfort zone at that moment with that partner and that no is an option for both people at any point. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure we got that message as, as teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole gendered message about you know boys being the aggressors and girls being the regulators, we need to let go a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's consequences for, for female children around pregnancy that there aren't for male children, but the consequences of being emotionally scarred and hurt and um, damaged in any way are for both genders. So we need to be really, really clear that mm-hmm. everything, the consent discussion has to be a much bigger discussion yes. than just consent at that moment between mm-hmm. two children or two teenagers or two young adults about to have sex. So we need to explain the cons- consent starts with handholding and kissing and consent can be taken away and consent goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have to consent as well. Right. And, and those kinds of conversations can start extremely early on, even with yes. young children about consent when talking about tickling or when another child doesn't want you to touch their face or yes. t- another child is not interested in having a hug or they wanted a hug yesterday, but they don't want one today, <laughs> whatever it is. But that is a conversation that we can start very early on so that when we do get to the time when we're talking about consent with a nine-year-old, and now we're discussing something a little bit more in depth, uh, you know, that it's not coming out of left field. And it's something that is building. Remember when we talked about how, you know, you didn't want your brother to tickle you. Uh, He used to tickle you, but now you don't want him to tickle you. This is about consent. And we, you know, we've, we've talked about that before. And then later on when they're 12 or when they're 14 or when they're 17, it's still a built-on conversation over time. Exactly, exactly. And there, like all the other conversations we have, but particularly in these two that you and I are talking about now, the drug and alcohol conversation and the, and the conversation around sex, keeping that conversation open, keeping that door open, there's nothing more important to that. And the minute we start passing judgments, bringing antiquated thinking in, bringing um, thinking about a world, maybe we're in a heterosexual relationship and have been all of our lives, but our kids may be in any combination and varying relationships over the course of their lives. So we can't, the minute we bring our sort of solidified, stultified viewpoint about the world into the conversations, our children stop talking. So it needs to be a lot of open-ended questions a lot of listening, a lot of letting them know that you may feel this today, you may feel differently six months from now, you may feel differently a year from now. I'm here for wherever you are at the point at which you are, you know, how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And you, because you told me six months ago that you felt like this, you're not, that's not, your feet are not in concrete. You're allowed to move how you feel about things at any point. Mm-hmm. So um, we need to let them know that because Mm -hmm. they are evolving and their thinking is evolving and their feelings are evolving. um, And we need to not say to them, but you told me what you said. We have to to let go of all that and let them know we're coming at this with just a completely open mind, a completely open heart. And we're just here to be there for them. Mm. Um, 
really good message. That's a really important message to send about anything, right? I mean, you know, your child said that they wanted to be a a doctor when they grew up and then now they've changed to, you know, they want to be a police officer. These are things that happen throughout life that they completely change their minds and it should be okay. They should never feel like, you know, something that they said at age nine is what they have to do at age 14 or 17 or 23. They need to be able to ebb and flow with more information and more experience so that they are listening to their gut, not what they said when they were younger. Yeah. The, 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 the way that we go off track around the sexual conversation, I think, is that we, we're adults and they're children and we know a lot more than they know. This mm-hmm. is, you know, and so our impulse is to do a lot of the talking, mm-hmm. but this isn't a conversation about sex so much as it's a conversation about who they are mm. and what they want and what they feel. And they know more about that than we do. So mm-hmm. yes, we might know more about how the pill works than they know. And we can give that little talk about here's what the pill does to your body. And because we have that information, but really what we're imparting, the important things that we're imparting is the listening that we do. So it's really important not the sex conversation that parents have given throughout time has been a one-way uh, flow of information. Mm. This information be, should be flowing as much the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a ch- this is a chance for a child to have a person in their life that they trust deeply, that they trust more than anyone in the world, their parent, where they can talk about the things that they're feeling and the things they're wondering about and explore their thoughts. Mm-hmm. Mm. They're an expert in their own lives. Exactly. They're the expert. Exactly. Right. So please complete this sentence. In order to raise independent adults, we must. In order to raise independent adults, um, we must teach them the, the skills that they need to know themselves best and to um, care for themselves best um, over, while they're still in our homes. Mm-hmm. So it's, I'm gonna go full circle here to where you and I started which is the things, most important things we need to teach our kids are the things they cannot learn by going to the internet. Mm. And that is, we need to teach them about themselves. We Mm. need to teach them to understand themselves, how they care for themselves, how they do all the important things they know and how they self-reflect. Because then they're looking inward instead of outward. They're, They're really thinking, what's right for me? What is my body telling me? What is my brain telling me? What is right in my situation for me at this time? It doesn't matter what's on the internet. Because that's not them. I think I think that's a great, great way to put it. And it's an important thing to consider when we are helping our kids learn these skills. Give us your top tip. What do you want us to walk away with after listening to this podcast so that we're best able to have these conversations with our kids? Uh, you know, I know it sounds cliche, but the, the top thing is that we are really here to listen. The amount of information, particularly since, um, you know, again, they have the entire world at their fingertips and it's in their pocket or their, or their backpack. We are really here to help them on the process of self-discovery and to be that person that they can talk to throughout their lives. You know, our children, we have to remember that our children will talk to us and keep in touch with us when they're in their 20s and 30s and beyond in a way perhaps more than we did mm-hmm. as, as young adults. So this is a lifelong relationship. So how are we going to navigate that relationship where they are completely independent, yet they are emotionally, um, you know, tied with us and, and close with us. Mm. Um, and we do that best by listening to them, by, be, by being that person that is always there for them, mm. but doesn't mm. do for them. 
Absolutely. You know, no generation, if people are finding it hard, it's because nobody's ever really been here before. Uh, We are very much treading uh, uncharted waters here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you and the work you're doing? So our website is grown and flown. That's simple. We have a Facebook group with 180,000 parents in it, which is a great conversation 24 Mm -hmm. hours a day, seven days a week on all the issues we, you and I have been discussing mm-hmm. here today. Mm-hmm. So joining the Facebook is great. The book, which is also called Grown and Flown, um, is everywhere you would buy a book. Mm-hmm. Well, we are going to look for it. I think that was great. I read through your whole book and I think it has a lot of great information, not just from you, but from uh, your co-author, from a lot of the parents that wrote in your book as well. And I just want to just say how much I appreciate you coming on the show today and being part of our community and talking to us about this very important time that is sometimes ignored, but really just as important as all the other ones, if not more, to set them up for success as they go through life and leave the nest. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. So let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. You can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page. We can also go to Grown and Flown on Facebook as we just talked about it. We can chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And I'm going to be going back and forth with Grown and Flown and with Lisa, just talking about these issues as the podcast is coming out. I'll be creating the memes that I know you love so that you can share them with your friends and share them with those who follow you so that they're learning about all the great things that we talked about today. And if you love this podcast, like I did, I really hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it. So other people can learn about these solutions, these skills that we talked about today. I can't tell you how much it means to me. I know there's been a lot of great five-star reviews that have come in lately. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. It does put the podcast in a totally different realm and it allows people to see it so much more readily. So thank you. That's all the time we have for today, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there. And the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. Perhaps you heard something today and you thought, you know what? I haven't been setting my kid up for a great success. I haven't been peeling back the support. I've been over-parenting. Or maybe you feel like you've been under-parenting or doing something that you wish you didn't do. Don't shame yourself. Let's just start over. You can do it again differently today, tomorrow, whenever you make that choice. And I am there with you. I see you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.